0: Let's now hear God's word spoken of in 1 Corinthians 2, chapter 1, uh, excuse me, verse 1 through 5. And when I came to you, brothers, and when I, excuse me, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, This is God's holy and inspired Word. It contains all that we need for faith and for life. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our Lord abides forever. Let's once again pray. Lord, we thank You for the Bible contained in Holy Scripture, Old and New Testament. And we ask that You would illuminate our hearts to receive these things that are true to your word may it, may it be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path we ask these things in Jesus' holy name amen one of martin luther's significant contributions to the heart of the reform of, of the reformation is the Heidelberg Disputation, where he maintains that there is a theology of glory and a theology of the cross. After he comments on 1 Corinthians one twenty one, he says, Now, it does no good to recognize God in His glory and majesty unless he recognizes Him in the humility and shame of the cross. For this reason, true theology and recognition of God are in the crucified Christ. He who does not know Christ does not know God hidden in suffering. He he prefers works to suffering, glory to the cross, strength to weakness, wisdom to folly, and in general, good to evil. Do you hear what Luther is attempting to say in this line? These words of Luther capture everything that Paul is contending against. Paul is a true theologian of the cross. He doesn't embrace a theology of glory, a theology that chooses wisdom over the cross. He doesn't embrace strength over weakness. He doesn't replace power over weakness and trembling. And he does not exchange rhetoric over true words of wisdom. Paul resembles in every way, as Luther describes it, a theology of the cross. This brings us to the doctrine or the theme of the text. And it is, Paul expresses real knowledge as he preaches Christ crucified and the real power of the Holy Spirit. I'll repeat that. Paul expresses real knowledge as he preaches Christ crucified in the real power of the Holy Spirit. I will speak in the exposition of two headings. One, real knowledge, and two, real power. Let us begin with real knowledge. Verse 1 says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. And I. This conjunction relates that Paul is connecting as intimately as he can the preceding verses. In the closest possible way, he is connecting these words to verse 30 and 31. And because of him. You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The Corinthians, and indeed you and I, have nothing to boast of except, the God, except God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He is reminding us of that. You and I have no wisdom to boast of. You and I have no righteousness to boast of. You and I have no holiness to boast of. You and I have no redemption to boast of. You and I have no reason to be self-reliant. We are fully, 100% dependent on God through Jesus Christ. In conclusion of the preceding passage, Paul quotes from Jeremiah nine twenty three and twenty four in 1 Corinthians one thirty one let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. This has enormous consequences on the manner of Paul's preaching, because he sees himself in this self dependent self-dependent manner. Therefore, he feels no compulsion to make you and I impressed with uh, his style or form. But he simply wishes to point you to the one that he is self-dependent on. God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That brings us to the manner of Paul's preaching Paul says of his manner or or form of proclamation that it was not with lofty speech or worldly wisdom. It seems quite apparent what he is speaking about. He did not preach with the rhetorical words or wisdom of men. He did not proclaim the testimony of God with eloquent words. Paul's manner of speaking was rather unimpressive. But Paul determined... He made a firm decision and resolved not to change his style. He determined not to speak as the sophists spoke in the Greco-Roman world at the time. He would rather be a fool for the sake of Christ. He spoke very plainly words in order that we may understand what is of primary importance and secondary importance. Eloquence is of secondary importance. But the word of the cross is primary, fundamental, and essential importance. This leads us to the summary of Paul's preaching. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The crucified Savior. This is a summary of what Paul preached This is consistent with chapter 1, verse 17, 18, 21, 23, and 28. He does not claim to be wise, but a fool for proclaiming Christ and preaching the folly of the cross. This does not exclude the resurrection nor the ascension of Christ. It is only meant to be a summary. The summary of this gospel message is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In that proclamation, Paul is describing that Christ is not just a good teacher. Although He was a good teacher. The best teacher in the world. However, He was not just a good teacher. Further, He was not just a good man. Although He was a good man. The greatest man that ever lived. But He was not just a good man. Further, he was not just an example to follow, although he was the greatest example to follow. The absolute best example. He did not preach Jesus as a good teacher or a good man or merely an example for us to follow. But more than that, he was crucified for the sins of his people. You may remember the WWJD bracelets that went around in the 90s. The slogan for this uh, popular religion said, what would Jesus do? It was supposed to remind you and I of your Christian duty to follow the example of Christ. The great teacher, the noblest of man, the greatest example. It was primarily a, a pretty good movement. However, the most relevant question and still is what, di- what did Jesus do? Not what would Jesus do? There are many things that you and I cannot do. You cannot live a perfect life. You cannot perform miracles. You cannot walk on water. You cannot calm storms. You cannot heal a demon-possessed man. And you cannot feed 5,000 with a few loaves of bread, a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. Most importantly, you cannot die for the sins of the people. So, the far more relevant question is what did Jesus do? Or rather, what has Jesus done? And this is the summary of the gospel message. Jesus has been crucified for the sins of His people. For, Paul says, I decided it was a conscious decision to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We need to reflect on what it means to present Jesus Christ and Him crucified because it has a variety of meanings. First, Christ's crucifixion was an expiatory sacrifice. He takes away all your sins forever in his once dying on your behalf. Like the scapegoat, He bears all your sins. Leviticus 16. As John the Baptist called out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is an expiatory sacrifice. Second, Christ's crucifixion was a propitiatory sacrifice. That means Christ, satis- excuse me, Christ satisfied the wrath of God in His death. As Romans 3.25 says, you and I are justified in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This propitiation confirms that God put forward Christ to satisfy His wrath because you and I were enemies prior to bringing saving faith to us. So He was a propitiatory sacrifice. But third, Christ's crucifixion was a, subst- excuse me, a substitutionary sacrifice. It was done on your behalf and in your place so that you wouldn't have to do it as if you really could. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It was an act of substitution. Jesus bore all our sins and his crucifixion. Fourth and finally, it was a, a vicarious sacrifice. It was of benefit to you and I. Jesus was crucified so that you that so that it would benefit you, so that you would receive the righteousness of God and everlasting life. 2 Corinthians 5:21 says, "For our sake he made him To be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. This is also called the great transfer. Jesus knew no sin, but He transferred His perfect obedience to you and imputed sin to Himself. It is of benefit to you that you obtain the righteousness of God from Christ's imputation and thereby receive eternal life. That was the message which Paul preached. The once and for all death on the cross to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God. This is the summary of what Paul preached. He preached Christ crucified. This moves us to our second heading, Real power. What is real or true power? Is real power achieved by eloquence or by rhetoric? Paul knows that true power only comes from God and by God's Holy Spirit. However, he speaks of this both negatively and positively. We will speak of the negative first and then the positive. The first is the negative. He preaches in weakness, in weakness. He is not ashamed that he preached the word in weakness. How is Paul weak? Is he saying that he has a bodily weakness, a bodily illness? Maybe. He was bodily weakened because of the stoning that was inflicted upon him at Lystra and Derby in Acts thirteen and fourteen. Remember Galatians four twelve. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel at first to you. Perhaps this is a bodily ailment that he is speaking of, or does he speak of a spiritual weakness? Maybe he is saying that he has been weakened spiritually. For as he says in uh, 2 Corinthians 12:9, but he said to me, Jesus, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. This expresses spiritual power and therefore spiritual weakness. or maybe he's referring to both bodily and spiritual and spiritually weakness. In 2 Corinthians 12:10, Paul writes, "For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardship, persecutions and calamities, for when I am weak then I am strong." This passage this passage says that he, is cons- that he is content with bodily weakness, hardships and persecutions, so that it makes him lean on Christ for spiritual strength. So I suggest that it, has, it was perhaps a combination of bodily and spiritual ailments so that he could be compelled to look toward Christ for strength in conquering both spiritual and bodily weaknesses. True power is found in Christ. And this is the testimony that he received from God to proclaim the crucified Savior. And he determined to do nothing besides that. Furthermore, Paul was not ashamed to admit that he preached the word in fear and in trembling. We might expect that Paul was not fearful of anything. Not fearful of pointing out the hypocrisy to Peter in Galatians 2. Not fearful to speak to the Jerusalem council in Acts 15. Not fearful to speak harsh words to Barnabas. However, Paul was afraid to speak to the Corinthians. And he adds this word to make it quite clear, trembling. This is spoken of in four other passages, these, these pair of terms. Mark sixteen eight, And they went out and fled from the tomb of Jesus, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing, for they were afraid. And fear and trembling are exactly the words which are repeated in 2 Corinthians 17, Ephesians 6.5, and Philippians 2.12. As Gordon Fee points out, that this is a common way of speaking in the Greek Old Testament to express the trepidation and dread and for reasons unknown to us, Paul seems overwhelmed by the che- by the task of evangelizing this great city. Paul was afraid. But furthermore, he preached in plainness. He says in verse 4, And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. The opposite of plausible words of wisdom is plainness. He was not ashamed to admit that he preached plainly or unimpressively. He determined to preach in a plain style. That is the final word of what he did not do, the, neg- the negative aspect. But now Paul begins by stating the positive, positive acts of his preaching ministry. He says that he was confident that he was preaching in demonstration of the Spirit. And of power. First, we'll look at uh, we'll look at or examine in demonstration. The Greek word for demonstration only occurs one time in the New Testament. Virtually every translation of the Bible leans toward uh, the word demonstration. But what is it? What does demonstration really mean? Synonyms of this word are misleading, such as protest, rally, or march. But is that really what the Bible truly means? I doubt it. Therefore, we need to look to extra-biblical material to understand how to interpret this word demonstration. In that material, demonstration means something akin to proof. Proof. Let's apply that to the text. Verse 4, And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in proof of the Spirit and power. Paul may not have preached with worldly power, but he proved that there is a spiritual aspect to his preaching. That brings power unlike anything that anyone has ever truly experienced. Therefore he proved whenever he preached, that there was a holy spirit, and that brings the spirit, and the spirit brings forth power. Let us reflect on this Holy Spirit. In verse 2, 6 and 10, Paul says, "Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom." Although it is not a wisdom of this age, verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. If we have accepted the crucified Savior by faith, God has revealed it to us by and through the Spirit. As 1 Corinthians twelve three says, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Paul is convinced when he preaches Christ crucified. If we receive these things by faith, it is in the wisdom not of this age, but these things have been revealed to us through the Holy Spirit. If we believe in Christ, it is only because the Spirit has worked a new birth in us. Remember, as Jesus said in John 3, If you are not born again, you cannot see, much less enter the kingdom of heaven. Paul is confident that if he speaks with the Holy Spirit, it simultaneously goes forth with power the word spirit is often accompanied with great power take for example first thessalonians 1 5 because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in the power and in the holy spirit and with full conviction the true preaching of the gospel that entails a crucified savior is preached by, in, and with the Holy Spirit, and it is armed with power. When the session meets just before the congregation gathers in worship, we pray that God will arm the preacher with conviction and power. Power of persuasion. Power of conviction of our sin and misery outside of Christ. Power to conform hearts to the will of God. Power to manifest that these things come from God and not from us. Power of the Spirit to prove that these things are so. We truly believe that God will do that through the preaching of His Word. We preach with weakness and in fear and much trembling. Verse 5 says, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men but on the power of God. As the reformer of the city of Bern, Wolfgang Musculus, commented, this human wisdom emptied the cross of Christ while the evangelical simplicity maintains the glory of Christ. In this, it comes back to our starting point in chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly, to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The preaching of the cross and the power of God and it brings salvation in its wings. This brings us to our applications. I want to discuss three applications with you. Three applications that should exceedingly encourage you. First, this is a Trinitarian salvation. This is a Trinitarian salvation. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18 says, But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 24 says, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. In chapter 2 verse 4, And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. This chapter speaks of the power of God, namely the Father, the power of Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice in the first verse, that's verse 18, that, uh, that is by the power of God, namely the Father. In verse 24, salvation uh, in Christ is, is Christ is the power of God. In the final verse, it is the spirit who demonstrates the power of God. The trying persons, Father, Son and spirit each contribute to your salvation. You can interchange the persons in the Godhead and you will not lose anything. The Father is the power of God. The Son is the power of God. The Holy Spirit is the power of God unto salvation. Isn't that an encouragement? The most important persons in the galaxy stoops down to little old you and me and speaks the word of salvation to us. Isn't that exceedingly encouraging? It is for me, I, I, I suggest that you be encouraged as well, that the most important persons in the galaxy condescends to your salvation. As I have often said, the Father offers the plan of your salvation, the Son accomplishes your salvation, and the Spirit applies the work of Christ to your salvation. Another encouragement that we can take from this passage is that Paul was fearful. Paul was fearful. Paul was afraid. He admits in this passage that I was with you in fear and trembling. But he didn't let, let that excuse me, but he didn't let that stop him from preaching Christ crucified. So that should not stop you as well. I realize and I understand that you may be fearful of sharing Christ with your friends and neighbors. You may be trembling when you think about it. But don't let that stop you. If you say something wrong, move on from it. But don't let that stop you from sharing Christ with your family and friends and even your enemies because it may be the source of bringing them to saving faith in Jesus. Let me say one final thing to encourage you. Major on the majors. That's what Paul demonstrates. When you get a test, when you get to bear the testimony of your faith in Christ, notice I said when, not if. When you get the opportunity, major on the majors. If this is an unbeliever, you should especially do that. Don't get started on uh, predestination or election or a thousand other things that you should be interested in as the body of Christ. However, for an unbeliever, major on the majors. Major on Christ crucified. Christ was crucified for sinners. And that he died and was in the grave for three days. And rose again and ascended into heaven. And called them to faith and repentance. And remember, if you do this, you will be armed with the Spirit and power. But major on the majors when you are speaking especially to unbelievers. In conclusion, I think that we can maintain what Luther meant by a theology of the cross. And that is consistent with Paul's preaching. He preaches the, the. Excuse me. He preaches the cross of Christ as a summary of Christian teaching and preaching. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Paul preached this message not in eloquent words of wisdom not in the rhetoric of the greco-roman empire but he preached with fear and trembling and much weakness so that our faith would not be the preach would not be in men's wisdom but in the power of god we thank you for that Because we have hope now. We have hope that Christ, of all the other things that we mentioned, Christ is the power of salvation. The cross of Christ is the power of of salvation to all of us who believe. May we compel others to believe. May we speak in, in demonstration of the Spirit and power with our uh, armed and armed with the Christ crucified. And may we compel and persuade other people to come in. We ask this all in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen.